Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of this podcast. But today I am joined by Greg Knuckles. He's been on the show before and he is currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. Greg, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me back. Um, Before we get into the content, a few reminders here. If you like the show, be sure to like, rate, or subscribe wherever you happen to get it. Uh, If you want to leave a positive review somewhere, that would also be nice. If you want to stay in touch with the Stronger by Science universe and get uh, periodic research updates delivered right to your email, go ahead and join our newsletter. You can do that by going to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. It is linked in the show notes today. If you are looking for a one-on-one virtual coach, we offer that as well. You can learn learn more by going to strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. If you want to get a discount on very reasonably priced supplements, you can go to bulksupplements.com. Use our code SBSPOD for a 5% discount. And if you'd like to support the show, you could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which comes out the first of the month, every single month. Uh, or you could check out the Macro Factor Diet app, uh, which does have a free trial, so you can check it out before you make any kind of financial commitment. Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. So uh, if you're listening to this, you're probably still getting adjusted to the new uh, schedule for the podcast. So just a reminder, we release a segment on our YouTube channel uh, on Wednesday, then we release another segment on Friday. And then the following Monday, that's where the whole episode comes out. Uh, and that comes to YouTube. It also goes to all of our plot, uh, podcast platforms. And the full episode contains both of those segments, plus a little bit of extra chatter. So if you wait and listen to the whole episode, you're not missing anything at all. And you actually have a little bit of additional chatter in there as well. Uh, so you can consume this content in whatever way you prefer and whatever way you see fit. Uh, speaking of which, uh, we had some intro chatter last episode and I have to eat some crow here. Uh, this was a really eye-opening experience for me. So in the last episode, I think it was the the most recent one, I speculated that only about 15% of men knew the difference between shampoo and conditioner. Uh, Greg, I, I think you pushed back a little bit about that number and you actually did know the difference. Well, yeah. And, and my kind of cultural, or my touch point there is I do less personal grooming than I think 95% of people. And therefore I think I know less about personal grooming than 95% of people. So my thinking was if I know what conditioner is, I assume most people do. Yeah, so there's two problems with the 15% number that I put forward. First of all, it's pretty narrow-minded. So I grew up in a culture and a time period in which relatively few men ever tried to maintain longer hairstyles. Uh, Growing up in Ohio in the 90s, long locks were not really a thing that a lot of gentlemen did. Uh, but that cultural norm is becoming pretty outdated pretty quickly. And spiritually, you grew up in the 50s. When, uh, correct. Yeah. When soon thereafter, the Beatles were scandalous. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so that cultural norm, even where I where I grew up, is is already pretty outdated and wasn't true 30 years prior. So I don't know why I just assumed like that's just how the entire world works. And along those lines, long hair among men is very common in a large number of cultures. 
So uh, very narrow-minded. I don't know why I just took my experience and extrapolated it to the entirety of humanity, but I did. Uh, so another issue with that 15% number is that it's just entirely wrong. So since that day when we recorded, I genuinely took an interest in this, and I've been asking everyone around me, regardless of, of sex or gender, do you know the difference between shampoo and conditioner? Every single person has known it with an extreme amount of detail. And so I'm left to conclude that apparently I'm just a complete dumbass. It's it's like one of those uh, like late night TV man on the street segments where you're where, where you're trying to like gotcha someone like, yeah, Ooh, here's here's this this thing that people seem to know. But like, do you actually know what this is? But it's just you go up to everyone on the street and they're like, of course, I know what that is. Yeah, I, I really thought I was like, oh, this is a lot of people are going to really, really be stumped by this. Every single person just answers it correctly in extreme detail and looks at me like, why would you ask that question? So <laughs> I thought it was about 15 percent. Uh, like I said, that was based on a very narrow minded perspective and just being completely out of touch with the entire world. So uh, I do want to note since I mentioned my my narrow-mindedness, I'm sure some people are going to think that I got a bunch of negative feedback and I'm succumbing to cancel culture and acknowledging my narrow viewpoint. Uh, we are recording this before that episode actually has been published. Yeah. So no one has corrected me on that, but I felt so stupid about how wrong I was that I literally sat down and reflected on it. And I said, <laughs> how, how have I been so wrong in this particular instance so i really dug into it and said on how many different uh levels could i have misinterpreted uh this particular thing so i'm just very stupid and i'm sorry for being stupid it's all good and you know it, it takes a big person to to be able to take the l like this right on the chin and yeah. keep moving forward so i i appreciate you for that yeah so so what do you got here yeah so uh i've got two Two fun research-related tools that might be worth checking out for people who uh, want to keep up to date with the research, but also who maybe have research-related questions and don't necessarily want to do like a systematic literature search to try to get answers to those questions. So within the last two or three months, I have become aware of two tools called Consensus and Elicit. Uh, and both of these tools, like they're, they're websites you can just go to, uh, and they use machine learning to extract answers to questions uh, from the scientific literature. So, you know, if like you could go to one of them and say, like, uh, like, does creatine or how much hypertrophy does creatine cause or something like that. Um, and, you know, it'll it'll do its thing and try to find an answer to that question for you from the literature, uh, complete with citations and you know, papers that you could read related to the question you're asking to try to get more clarity on the subject. Um, and I, I've played around with both of these tools. And I think that they're, I would, I would say that they're probably like 70, 80% of the way there. So if you're like an academic, or if you're just trying to go really deep on a particular topic, make sure you get all of the supporting literature for a particular subject. Um, the, these aren't going to do the job for you, but if you're, you know, just trying to get your feet wet in a particular area of the literature, or if there's just a question you have where 
you don't necessarily care about knowing all of the background information, like all of the context, all of the nuance, and getting really, really deep into it, and and just trying to get a, a rough idea about what the literature says about a particular topic. Uh, I, I think these are, are definitely two very useful tools for that. Um, so yeah, just uh, just be aware of both of them. We'll put them in the show notes. And uh, yeah, they're they're cool and fun to play around with. Yeah, that that's more useful than my opening segment. But uh, no, that that's interesting. I'm curious to see how quickly some of these machine learning online tools are going to develop. Because I think I heard of something else that it's like you type in a prompt mm-hmm. and it does like a digital rendering, like a drawing yeah, of yeah. like what you typed in. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see machine learning starting to, I think that's based on machine learning, that other one, right? I assume, but, but yeah, (laughs) some of these like kind of they're, they're marketed as like AI type, uh, applications and websites. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see if, uh, if they really start to fill in and progress over the next like five or 10 years, but, but ultimately I absolutely have no idea. So we'll see. Yeah. You know, with the um, with like the the AI prompt thing where you can just type something and it'll make a painting from it. Uh, there was someone who like I don't remember all of the details, but uh, someone won like an art contest somewhere with a, a painting that was made from one of those prompts, um, or not a painting, but like a, a digital art contest, and uh like just following the discourse of that on Twitter, people were very upset about it, but I I thought it was kind of ironic because like I'll fully admit I don't I don't get modern art, I don't think. Uh and I'm sure that sounds uncultured to say. Um, you know, and and I certainly don't begrudge people who who do get it, like I don't think they're full of shit. I don't begrudge people who like it. I just I just think I'm not cultured enough to understand it. But like a big part of kind of the early parts of that movement was kind of like deconstructing what art is in the first place. Um, And for kind of like traditionalists, that made them very upset. But now like using AI to make things that are visually appealing, that people recognize as art, that can maybe win an art contest, that seems to be like deconstructing the concept of like what an artist is. Yeah. Yeah. and so it's it's kind of like the artists are getting a taste of their own medicine, like deconstruct this motherfucker. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I I just think it's cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I was talking to a, a school teacher the other day, and apparently the the big thing they're worried about now is um, basically AI tools where you put in a a work that has been written, and mm-hmm. instead of plagiarizing it word for word. The, you tell the AI like, "Hey, can you like rephrase this a little bit?" Yeah. And it does it. And uh, apparently, uh, kids in schools these days are starting to use that to turn in uh, essays that they had like literally nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting times ahead. Um, yeah, you, I don't know. You know, I I think I think it'll be interesting to see how how like education adjusts to things like that because like I remember when we were going through school. Uh, in math class, teachers would be like, you got to learn how to do this stuff. It's not like you're you're going to go around through life with a calculator in your pocket. But like, <laughs> yeah. psych, we are. Like, yeah. we all have calculators in our pockets. 
So I'm I'm curious how the teaching of math has changed as a result of that and whether there will be further changes like you know like as long as someone has a grasp of basic algebraic principles uh do they actually need to know how to do division in their head you know what i mean yeah um and i wonder i wonder like how many skills people now view as really crucial maybe a hundred years from now, we'll look back on and say like, oh, that seems like mostly obsolete because like yeah. we now have tools that can do this for us. And like, I, I think arithmetic is going to go that way. Uh, cursive has largely gone that way because yeah. like you can type faster than you write in cursive. Most people have laptops on them. I, I heard something jarring. Uh, again, I was talking to a school teacher who teaches at the elementary school level. Mm-hmm. Apparently kids these days, many of them mm-hmm. are better at typing on their phone than on a computer and some of them actually really struggle to type on a computer because That's, they that are is interesting yeah so they they will actually ask if it's okay if they write their first draft of a paper for example basically as a note on their phone that's wild which to me is obscene yeah. like th- that sounds so insane but but yeah i you guess can that's type the way pretty it's fast with like the swipe texting yeah do you do you swipe or do you go letter by letter oh come on i go letter by letter yeah that's fair yeah um but anyway like so i i think that um you know if you put put it to someone like hey maybe like composition like writing skills might not matter quite as much in the future because as long as you can bang some ideas out there like ai can kind of flesh out the rest of the text i think when that hits a lot of people's ears, they would immediately be scandalized because it's like, well, that's been such an important skill for so long. But I think back to um, like, so if you read kind of social commentary from around the time the printing press came out, which I'm sure most people listening to this have, uh, (laughs) it was scandalous. Like it was very scandalous in this same type of way because prior to that, like education was mostly just memorizing stuff because the way information was disseminated was either like, uh, you know, in, in oral traditions, just verbally passed down and you just had to like memorize it. Or in the case of like, you know, academics and universities, you know, there might be like two copies of a particular scroll in existence. And, you know, if you're doing your, your PhD in divinity at the university of, of Genoa and they have like a particular scroll in Florence or something, you take a trip down to Florence, you read it, you memorize it, and like that's what you use for your academic work thereafter. And like you have to have a pretty good memory of that in your mind the rest of your life. Otherwise, you have to take another road trip to Florence to read it again. Yeah. Um and so when books were invented, folks were just like this is terrible. Like this is going to ruin all of the skills necessary to become like a well-read or like a well-rounded intellectual person. Cause like folks are going to stop memorizing everything and that's going to be the downfall of us all. And yeah. now we look back on it and it's like, Oh, like books seem to be fine. So yeah, I, I am interested to see what new like skills and avenues for creativity, like AI opens up for us and what skills we now think are absolutely crucial that, we'll look back on in 50 years and be like, Oh yeah, we don't, we don't really need that anymore. You yeah. Know? It, it, it'll be cool to see how that goes. I agree. Um, so you want to go ahead and dive in? You got a segment for us? Yeah, let's do it. So, cool. uh, let's, let's shift from talking about 
art and literature into uh i mean study design yeah let, let's get out of our wheelhouse <laughs> and, and try to address some of these topics yeah um so let's start this this sec this segment with a question so Eric, if you had to narrow it down to precisely one thing, like obviously it's more than one thing, but if you just had to say, like, what one thing more than anything else seems to be the primary mechanism of muscle hypertrophy, what what would you say? Yeah, so that would bring me back to, um, there's a few like pretty in-depth reviews about the mechanism of, of muscle hypertrophy. Usually they narrow it down to, mechanical tension, muscle damage, and metabolic stress. And I actually would, uh, you know, I, I would say that mechanical tension being the first one there, that, that's the one I would go with um, if I had to pick one. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I, I think that's a great answer. Uh, and with that context, uh, a paper was recently published uh, with a very provocative title, Effective Resistance Training Mainly Depends on Mechanical Activation of Fast Twitch Fibers. And so uh, what I want to do in this segment is address, partially is that true, but more so, does does the paper bearing that title present us with adequate evidence to believe that it's true? Yeah. Um, and so uh, the, the short version, just here up top, not, not trying to leave people in suspense is uh no i i don't think we should put much stock if any in this particular paper uh, and the reason i want to talk about this the reason i'm doing this segment is i've started seeing this paper going around i, I think it was published about a month ago uh first time it came across any of my timelines was maybe like two weeks ago and within the last week i've seen more and more people sharing it talking about it discussing it uh, and it's not it's not big yet. It's kind of like simmering below the surface, but I'm concerned that it will kind of reach a critical mass and uh, like a lot of folks will become aware of it and uncritically accept its findings as true. Uh, so and it's like a band that plays the cooler bars in town. And when they have a gig, a lot of people show up, but like right. they don't have a huge record deal yet. Correct. Yeah. 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 So um yeah, basically, I I think that this is a, a, a paper with findings built on incredibly shaky foundations that I don't think we should put much stock in. So I, I want to do this segment just to just to head that off, essentially. Cool. Um, and just as a general note, if you have shared this paper, uh, perhaps uncritically, um, I, this isn't a call out segment. I don't, I don't begrudge you for doing that. I certainly don't think less of you for doing that. Um, because like the, the title of the paper and its purported findings do seem to track well with things we already know. Uh, mechanical tension seems to be very important for hypertrophy. So a people, a paper saying mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers seem to be the primary driving factor of hypertrophy. That seems to comport well with what we already know. And, you know, if things already confirm what you know or strongly suspect to be true, you might be a little bit less likely to look into it deeply. Um, and also, like, I, I do think that there's just sort of a general zeitgeist around trying to find, like, a grand unified theory of hypertrophy. And that sort of thing is just kind of, like, intrinsically appealing to people. 
And the other reason I don't begrudge folks for taking this paper uncritically is this study and also kind of the study it's built upon are very math heavy, like extremely math heavy. Uh, and so like I, I, I'm the type of sick fuck who's willing to look at that and be like, Ooh, okay, let's, let's put all of these equations in a spreadsheet, kind of work through them, see what's going on here. But like, I totally get that if someone either doesn't have a strong math background or is just like a normal person with plenty of things to do in, in a day, you just see more than like three Greek letters in a block of text and say, nope, fuck it. Like I'm, I'm just going to trust that the authors did everything right because it's not worth my time to get into this. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, if I can make a quick comment before you dig into the details here, uh, I don't mean to grab the steering oh, yeah, wheel, yeah, but go for it. I really like the way that you, it was a very subtle thing, but the way that you uh, kind of alluded to confirmation bias there where, mm -hmm. where basically it seems to comport well with kind of how you generally view things. And so you just kind of uncritically say, yeah, that, that works, that makes sense. And you, and you roll with it. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people believe deep down that like confirmation bias is a malicious act of cherry picking. Mm -hmm. And that like when someone is committing confirmation bias or, or expressing it, they're like digging in and saying, how can I prove myself right? Despite contradictory evidence. But I think the more, um, uh, the more damaging version of confirmation bias is just that thing where you say, it's not that I'm like maliciously cherry picking, but like, because this comports with what I would expect, I'm simply not going to scrutinize it with that same level of intensity. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I a hundred percent do that as well. It, it's like, a natural, that's it's, why it's, it's a, a term. It's a time saving mechanism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like if, if a paper comes across the journal sweep and it's like, <laughs> hey, hey, it's uh high load training versus low load training. And we're looking to see which one has a larger effect on one RM strength. Oh, the high load training did. Cool. Like, I'm not going to look into that paper in detail and say, like, yeah. does this finding hold up? Because it's like, well, I I know or at least so strongly suspect that to be true. I don't care that much about the details. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm just going to put another tally in the high load training is better column, you know? And, and there is a, a considerable degree of redundancy in our, our field. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I kind of chuckled because I was thinking about, like, you know, a paper comes across and says, yeah, creatine made people a little stronger. Am I really going to be like, well, I need to email the author because I, I can't find supplementary table number three. Correct. You know, it's, yeah. it, it's just you, you file it away and say, yeah, that, that makes sense. Correct. Yeah. So uh, to be clear, what I'm arguing here is not that mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers aren't a predictive factor for hypertrophy. What I'm arguing is this is not the study you, you should rely on to make that point. Yeah. All right. So, um... At this point, if you're if you're watching on YouTube, we can just flash the or we can just put the the abstract uh, up here because I think that's the part of the study that most people have actually read at this point. Uh, and for people listening, uh, I'm just going to read the abstract just so we can all kind of get our feet wet and understand the sorts of claims that this paper is making. Uh, so the abstract says. Uh, this study conducted a secondary survey based on the hypothesis that, quote, total mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers in the muscles determines the effects of muscle hypertrophy, close quote, with resistance training of the knee extensor muscles as the target because of its importance in preventing sarcopenia. Using a mathematical model that estimates the mechanical activation of each muscle fiber, parentheses, fast twitch and slow twitch fibers, close parentheses, during exercise, which was developed in a previous study, 
We estimated the total mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers in 30 training programs described in 23 selected previous studies on leg extension exercise programs and their muscle hypertrophy effect. With the estimated value and other factors of the training effect described in previous studies, training volume, etc., as explanatory variables, and muscle hypertrophy effect as an objective variable, uh, we performed multiple regression analysis. The results revealed that the training effect was related to total mechanical activation of the fast twitch fibers, uh, training load, and number of sets, uh, with the beta coefficients being positive for mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers and training load, and uh, negative for number of sets. Uh, going on, the total mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers was the strongest determinant of the muscle hypertrophy effect. That one quote right there, as an aside, that one quote right there, I think is the thing people are, are really focusing on uh, going on. In addition, we predicted the relationship between the level of the training effect of leg extension exercise and program variables. This study is the first to demonstrate, quote, the relationship between total mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers and muscle hypertrophy effect, close quote, in the field of muscle physiology, and the first to elucidate the association between the program variables and the training effect. So, uh, just in layman's terms, to break all of that down, what they did for this study is they went through the literature. They didn't do a, a truly systematic literature search. Essentially, they, they developed some key terms and just, just looked at the hundred, like the first hundred studies with those key terms in them uh, and looked for the ones uh, where there was a longitudinal knee extension training intervention uh, with you know, all of the information they would need to apply their model to it. Uh, and they identified 23 such studies in the 100 results they screened uh, with 30 different training protocols that assessed hypertrophy over time. Once they found those studies and those protocols, they used a mathematical model that they'd previously developed to estimate total fast twitch fiber activation during each protocol. So that's like, that's an integrated effect sort of area under the curve. Uh, and then from there, they performed multiple regression analysis to see which training variables were predictive of hypertrophy responses. And what they found is that the strongest best predictor was total mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers, uh, which was positively associated with hypertrophy. And then the other thing people seem to be pulling out of this, I think erroneously, uh, is that in their multiple regression model, there was a negative beta coefficient for um uh for number of sets like total training volume and people are using this to argue like ooh like everyone's wrong about the effect of training volume on muscle growth there's a negative beta coefficient here if you do more volume that leads to less growth but with multiple regression that that's basically saying when you hold like when accounting for the other variables in the model this seems to be negatively predictive and so essentially total activation of fast twitch fibers is positively associated with training volume because it's like a, a cumulative metric, like an area under the curve metric. And so essentially that negative beta coefficient is telling you that the additive effect of each additional set is smaller and smaller. So just to make that clear. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's that's kind of the, the layman... Well, that was a pretty poor layman's terms breakdown, but that's that's sort of the, the grand... Yeah. A concise overview. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the general overview of the study. And like I said, I think the part that jumped out to most people when they were, were reading that abstract was just kind of the 
core kind of flashy finding there in the abstract that total mechanical activation of fast twitch muscle fibers was predictive of hypertrophy. The thing that jumped out at me was uh, this sentence specifically. Using a mathematical model that estimates the mechanical activation of each muscle fiber, uh, fast twitch and slow twitch, which was developed in, in a previous study. So, you know, they weren't using studies that had measured mechanical activation of fast twitch muscle fibers. They were using uh, a set of equations to estimate that variable. And so that was the thing that jumped out at me. Uh, and the reason that jumped out at me is that I didn't think we could do that particularly well <laughs> um, for, for a couple of reasons. One is that there aren't that many labs that can actually measure that variable. So if you're interested in looking at the actual like recruitment and activation patterns of different fiber types, you need a very particular EMG setup, like high-density EMG that you can use to decompose the signals and look at individual fibers, which you can then split out by fiber type. And there aren't that many labs that can do that, that type of research. And I also think we're kind of a long way from being able to do that type of research with dynamic exercise, like, you know, eccentric and concentric knee extensions, because for high-density EMG to get good signals that you can decompose and look at the individual fibers, I think you need to do isometric exercise because, you know, the electrodes are on the skin and as the muscle contracts, like the position of the individual fibers relative to the skin moves a little bit. Um, and so I think you have to do this only with isometric exercise. So like that part jumped out at me when I was reading the abstract because I was like, oh, like that's that's actually incredibly cool. Like if there's a, a high quality validated uh, equation or set of equations to be able to predict um, like fast twitch and slow twitch fiber activation in dynamic exercise uh, with any any reasonable degree of granularity, that's, if that exists, like that's that's a pretty big deal. Uh, and I didn't know that existed. So uh, I was like, okay, let's look at the paper that they're saying, uh, like, validated that equation. Uh, and so to be clear, the the main paper I'm talking about here, effective resistance training mainly depends on mechanical activation of fast-twitch fiber, like that paper, its findings rest solely on the validation study it's citing. Like, because their their data, like their, their predicted data for fast-twitch fiber activation for their main study, that all came from the equations developed in the prior study they're citing to, which if you want to check all of this out in the main paper, it's citation 20. You can pull it up for yourself. And so if the, the paper they're citing to, if it shows good, strong data to say like, hey, based on these variables, we can predict fast twitch fiber activation very well, then this might be a good, reliable, robust finding. If we look at this validation study and it doesn't seem to predict fast twitch fiber activation particularly well, or heaven forbid, if that's not even what that study was doing in the first place, uh, you know, maybe we're, we're dealing with a, a house built on sand here. Uh, so I pulled up the validation study. The title was Proposal and Validation of Mathematical Model for Resistance Training. And before I get into this, uh, Eric, mm -hmm. can you just describe to me how validation studies tend to work 
in our field? Yeah, so, you know, there's different types of validity and therefore different types of validation studies. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't do any equation validation in my PhD. We would normally do validation for instruments. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty straightforward. You're pretty much comparing to a gold standard criterion measurement and saying, hey, how, how close did we get? Um, but generally speaking, when you're trying to develop and validate an equation, uh, you need to recruit a sample that's theoretically representative of the population you're trying to validate this in mm -hmm. and derive the predictive equation. So you measure some data, you measure the outcome of interest, basically say, okay, which of these predictors and, and in what combination do we get a good you know, predictive equation that, that describes or explains the variance in that outcome, mm -hmm. right? And that's the first step. But if you bring in any sample of people, you, you can get an equation. Right? Correct. Yeah. Like, things vary, and therefore you will get an equation if you really want one. Yes. The point where it becomes validation is when you say, you know what? The equation we got from these individuals also works with other samples of individuals from this population. Yes. So transferring those values, because you will get values... Transferring those to other samples effectively and reliably is where the magic happens. Right. So the the two things there is one, uh, you want you want to recruit a representative sample, and you also generally want it to be a large enough sample that you can have reasonable reasonable confidence that the equations you derive, the findings you get, will generalize to the broader population. Yeah. And two, um, generally. And I think always you want to actually measure the thing you're trying to predict. Yeah. So, for example, if you were trying to make a new body composition equation, you might have people do a four compartment body composition assessment and then look at their maybe age, lean mass, sex, maybe activity level, just whatever, like any number of things, and then develop a set of equations to see okay, we've measured their body composition. We have this other data. Can we use these other variables to predict body comp, which, which we measured? And then you get another sample in and say, hey, we measure their body composition. We collect this other data. Does that set of equations that I previously developed still predict body comp pretty well in this other sample? Okay, so the, but quite notably there, you assessed body comp in both of those samples, right. if that's the thing you're trying to validate for. Um, so when diving into this validation study, uh, the first thing that jumped out at me is there were only six subjects, which, I mean, maybe those are six subjects that are incredibly representative of the target population they were drawn from. Uh, and generally, I'm not the, the type of person to uh, like be such a nitpicker about sample size but for for validation studies like you need more than that and that's six subjects total that's not one population of six subjects and then see if equations hold up in another population of six subjects it's just six subjects which uh not a ton uh and then uh the second thing that jumped out at me and this is really the kicker they didn't measure fast twitch fiber activation in this study. Like, they just didn't. Uh, like, you can read the methods for yourself. This, the Both of these studies I'm talking about, full text is free. They'll be linked in the show notes. You can read this for yourself. At no point in the study did they actually measure 
fast twitch fiber activation. They didn't even measure EMG. Like nothing that was even like a proxy for muscle activation at all. Uh, and so if you work your way through the study, ultimately what they were doing is they were using quite a lot of complex math to predict how many reps people would be able to complete during sets to failure with different loads at different contraction velocities and with different rest intervals. And how this worked is essentially they had like 17 protocols they put these people through and they looked to see whether, like they developed a set of equations to predict uh, how many reps they'd be able to complete on subsequent sets of like five set protocols uh, with six of the 17 protocols. And then they looked to see whether the equations they developed from those six protocols could predict uh, reps to failure with the other 11 protocols with slightly different mixes of training variables, uh, which, you know, is a completely reasonable way to do a validation study. But again, generally, you'd, you'd probably want more than six subjects. Um, but like the important thing here is this was not a validation study to see if they could predict fast twitch fiber activation. It just wasn't. Um, what it was is there was one particular equation in the set, like in the large set of equations they used that contained assumptions about fast and, to and slow twitch fiber activation and total fiber activation. Um, and it seems to be what they're doing is saying, well, assumptions about fiber activation were built in, were kind of baked into the equations we used. The equations we used seem to do a decent job of predicting reps to failure performance. Therefore, all of the assumptions baked into our equations must therefore be true. Wow. Which I don't know what else to say other than that's not how that works. Yeah. Uh, so uh, how a validation study for this might look is that you could measure fast twitch fiber activation during training protocols in a group of subjects. Then you develop a set of regression equations based on, get, on data gathered during those protocols to see if there's a mix of variables that were predictive of actual fast twitch fiber activation. Then you put a new group of subjects through those same training protocols, uh, measure fiber act measure fast twitch fiber activation as that new group of subjects goes through these protocols and then see whether the equations you developed on that first population did actually predict fast twitch fiber activation in the second population that's that's how you might do a, a validation study to predict fast twitch fiber activation from various tr like training program characteristics that's not what they did in their in their validation study. To be clear, like to put this in no uncertain terms, the validation study they're citing was not a validation study for predicting fast twitch fiber activation. It simply it simply wasn't. And I I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. So essentially the the main paper I'm talking about here is it's it's a a house built on sand. Like the the data going into their model for prediction of fast twitch fiber activation from those 23 studies and 30 training protocols, there is no reason to suspect that they were accurately predicting fast twitch fiber activation in those 23 studies. No reason whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the bulk of my critique. Uh, 
it's this isn't a study to to put like any stock in whatsoever and i'll also note just in broad strokes like if you if you didn't want to get into all of the nerd shit of actually going to look at their supposed validation study for this and and digging into it uh you could just look at the text of the study itself so there's uh and if you're watching on youtube we can we can flash an image up here um like there's a figure just showing the the bivariate relationship between their predicted mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers and increase in muscle size and like you can look at it for yourself there's not much of a relationship there like in in the two protocols with the lowest predicted mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers not much hypertrophy occurred and then there's one like one study where like an absurd amount of hypertrophy occurred that did also have a high predicted amount of mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers. But beyond those like three data points, everything from like the, the Y axis or the X axis here goes from like 200 to 1600, everything from like 500 to 1600 looks basically the same. Like you could just draw a straight line through that data. Like just, just pure visual inspection tells you that, there's not a particularly strong relationship there. Um, and if that's not enough, going an additional step deeper, like the actual model they developed in their supposed validation study also just conflicts with experimental evidence in this area. So I got another question for you, Eric. So yeah, you're, let's hear it. You're a bodybuilder, uh, two sport professional bodybuilder. Yeah, uh, I'm a bodybuilder, but I more think of myself as a classic bodybuilder. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. But I mean, you you are a pro at both. Correct. The Bo Jackson of bodybuilding. Many yeah. people are saying. So you know you know a thing or two about building muscle and how you might personally train to go about trying to build muscle. And so you know, let's say you wanted to do some low load training for for any number of purposes maybe you just want a bit of masochistic fun maybe you're trying to train around or through an injury and you can't load a joint particularly heavy and and you have two options on the table you can either do three all-out sets of 30 reps with a load that you can only do 30 reps with so so three sets to failure 30 reps per set really getting after it or alternately you could do nine sets of 10 reps uh, with the same load, a load that you could do 30 reps with, with nice long rest intervals per set. Uh, and, you know, you're equating the number of reps you're doing. It's 90 reps regardless. Uh, with but the same load. Yeah, with the same load, but it's three sets of 30 versus nine sets of 10. Which one of those protocols do you think you would derive a, a stronger growth stimulus from? I would expect the, the three sets of 30. Yeah, so I I would as well, but again, like so this is something else we've talked about on the podcast before. Like when you're evaluating research, are are you signing? Actually, maybe we maybe this was a mass audio thing. Uh, the the thing about eating fruit and whether that makes you gain or lose twenty pounds or whatever. Yeah. Uh, anyways, um, yeah. So we we've talked about like, are you willing to take the results of a study literally or not? And if you're willing to cite this paper and say, hey, this is this is proof that uh, uh, mechanical activation of fast twitch fibers is the predictive factor of hypertrophy. 
if you're willing to do that and you're you're signing on to this this is a literal finding that we should take seriously then you are implicitly signing on to the study they're citing for predicting fast twitch fiber activation and when you look into that 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 would lead you to the point where you would then therefore have to argue that the nine sets of 10 would be a better hypertrophy stimulus, which I don't think many people would want to like, I don't, I don't think many people are going to carry water for that idea. So, and if I could just contextualize that, you mentioned the fruit study, basically there was a study indicating there's two different groups. One group, they're like, Hey, try to eat like a little more fruit. And that's the entire intervention. And the other group, they're like, Hey, have a little bit less fruit. And that's the entire intervention. And they ended up having like a 30 pound gap in weight change over like the six months trial. And, and my my argument was like, no one actually believes this. Yeah. Like, like no one li- literally believes that to be true. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the model that they developed in their previous study with assumptions about fast and, t- and slow twitch fiber activations baked in, uh, their model essentially assumes that fast twitch fiber activation progressively decreases due to fatigue which is probably true like that is potentially and and maybe even likely one of the reasons why uh training with really short rest intervals is maybe less productive for hypertrophy than slightly longer rest intervals as fatigue accumulates uh fiber recruitment might drop off a little bit um their model also assumes that fast twitch fiber activation doesn't increase as a set progresses and again, if, if you're watching on YouTube, there's a figure from that validation study that we can put up here. This is figure three, uh, A and B. So it shows uh, predicted uh, fast twitch and total fiber activation uh, during uh, sets with 80% of one RM. And like it, like if you're watching this on YouTube, you can just look at it. If you're listening, I can describe it to you. Uh, essentially, it's showing predicted fast twitch fiber activation in A over nine reps, and it is not changing rep to rep to rep. Uh, like it's a, a solid, a solid line, and the predicted fast twitch fiber activation for each rep is the same as the one before it. And then uh, B is the same prediction, but for the last set of an exercise, and. Uh, yeah, it, it's the same. Like the predicted fast twitch fiber activation is the exact same for every single rep. So it's, and that does conflict with uh, experimental evidence and also like the best theoretical models we have of fiber activation. Like it seems that as you get closer to failure, um, you recruit more of your higher threshold motor units and uh, like the, the, uh, the the depolarization rate of your highest threshold motor units increase as you get closer to failure. So that one, like their their model does seem to conflict in that way with experimental results. Um, and their model essentially predicts that the total uh, like integrated area under that curve is what is predictive of hypertrophy. And so essentially what that signs you up to believe is that the earliest reps in a set are just as stimulating for hypertrophy as the later reps in a set. There's there's no difference between those reps. And the activation of fast twitch fibers does decrease as fatigue accumulates. So you don't want to go to failure and you don't want to have short rest intervals. You want to stay a long way from failure and have nice long rest intervals 
so you don't accumulate fatigue and fast twitch fiber activation stays high. So if you take this model seriously, like you're, you would be saying nine sets of 10 at a 30 RM load is better for hypertrophy than three sets of 30 at a 30 RM load. Like that's like, would, like would that, 30 sets of three be even better? Potentially so. Which again, like I, I don't think anyone would actually argue for in the real world. But right. if, you, if you're taking this model seriously, you have to be willing to argue for that because that is a logical implication of this model that you're putting your weight behind. Yeah. Um, and so like that also just like conflicts with longitudinal hypertrophy research we have. So there was a paper by uh, Lasavikius and colleagues in 2019 called Muscle Failure Promotes Greater Muscle Hypertrophy in Low-Load But Not High-Load Training. And it was essentially a study looking at, at this scenario we're describing. So there were four conditions here, uh, two high-load, two low-load conditions. Uh, two of the conditions, subjects just performed three sets to failure. And in the other two, so a high-load to failure condition, a low-load to failure condition. And then the other two groups, one high-load, one low-load group, they did five sets with 60% of the number of reps as the to-failure condition. So uh, essentially, if you completed 80 total reps across three sets to failure in the low-load condition, you would do uh, five sets of 16 to equate the total number of reps. So it, it would be 60% the number of reps per set for 60% more sets. So it, it all works out. Or... 66 whatever like you 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 get what i'm saying yeah uh or if someone did like three sets of 10 to failure in the high load condition 30 total reps for the non-failure condition they would do five sets of six reps to equate uh and so in that study if if you were taking this model literally and seriously you would predict that the non-failure conditions would cause at least as much hypertrophy as the failure conditions if not more uh and what they did, in fact, actually find, and if you're watching this on YouTube, we'll, we'll put the results up on the screen. The two high load conditions caused the same amount of hypertrophy. So the failure and non-failure condition both led to similar muscle growth. And then for the low load conditions, the failure condition led to considerably more muscle growth than the, than the non-failure condition. So again, if, if you were taking this model seriously, that would... Th this finding would fully conflict with that model. It should be better to do the low load training further from failure so you don't accumulate as much fatigue so fast twitch fiber activation stays higher. That is not what we see in the actual experimental uh, research. So uh, just to recap, uh, the equations used in this study to predict fast twitch fiber activation uh, haven't actually been validated for predicting fast twitch fiber activation. And th this whole segment could could have just ended there like that that wouldn't be any fun though yeah that, that's that's enough to completely obsolete the uh the main study i'm talking about here um but then also like the logical implications of the model that this is all based on uh conflict with experimental data and also just real world experience like no no one would actually train in the way that it is suggested you should train if you take this model seriously yeah uh so that's all I've got. And uh, apologies if this segment came across as too mean or too harsh. But like I said, this this study seems to be starting to gain a foothold. And 
I just think it would be a real shame if if it kind of entered the public zeitgeist and folks were being like, oh yeah, like this is this is really solid stuff. We know what is predict like we know what's causing hypertrophy based on this study because y- you just shouldn't you shouldn't draw that conclusion from it. Like it's it's not uh like not to be too harsh, but like it's it's just not good work. Yeah. Um and so yeah, like I you know I think there's value in debunking misinformation that's already out there. And I also think there's value in debunking misinformation before it starts to take off. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do here. Yeah, no, I I think you did a great job. And I I think it's, it's really important when you're looking at a new study um, and you have access to the full text, just a couple quick things to prevent from being led totally astray by some of the chatter on social media. Look at what actually got measured. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at not just the direction of results, but the actual magnitude. Mm-hmm. And then ask yourself in a very literal way, do I believe that? Yeah. And like, I, I know it sounds overly simplistic, but if you just you know, use that as your just entry point into a paper as like the basic bare minimum of interpretation, it'll actually get you pretty far. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was one of the things I, I don't know if I misspoke when explaining the, the intervention with that fruit paper, but one group uh, just had a tiny increase in fruit intake. The other had a tiny decrease and the researchers were saying, oh, what happens to body weight? Greg, you are familiar with fruit, right? I am, yeah. What happens is nothing. <laughs> like when you have when you have two more pieces of fruit per day in a free living situation, you eat a little bit little less of something else and nothing happens for the most part. I mean, I I did a an experiment with my diet a while back precisely around that. Like yeah. I I was consuming no fruit because I was doing a bunch of meal prep and all of my carbs for the day were already accounted for, mostly from rice and also a larger percentage than I'm comfortable with from onions. I really yeah. like onions, but sometimes I eat so many onions, I smell like onions. And that's probably less than ideal. So I was like, hey, let's let's just mix things around and let's get rid of all other carb sources. I'm just eating chicken and fruit. Yeah. And so like if that study was to be taken literally, like the the group that increased fruit consumption gained like 15 pounds. The group that decreased fruit consumption lost like 15 pounds. Yeah. So, and we're talking about a difference in fruit servings of like two or three plus or minus. A day, Or potentially even less. Yeah. So I I went from zero servings of fruit per day to, I don't know exactly how they quantified it in that study, but probably like 25 servings of fruit per (laughs) day. And like, it was fine. Uh, Yeah. On net, it seemed to be productive, but... uh, I just kind of got tired of of cutting up all of that fruit. And also, like, I don't like going to the store that often. This was the biggest thing. Like, fruit goes bad. And this this isn't food safety advice, audience. They tell you, like, food that you cook and then you put in the fridge, you should... I think they say that it's only, like, safe to eat for, like, four or five days. That's a lie. It's good for up to, like, a week and a half that I don't take that seriously. I'm not saying that as an expert, that's not advice to you. Me personally, up to a week and a half, I'm like, okay, this is fine, whatever. I've never gotten sick from it. Yeah. Anyway, fruit goes bad after like three or four days. So I, I went from going to the store once per seven to 10 days to going to the store like every two days. 
I was like, ah, this is just annoying. But in terms of body composition effects, it was entirely unremarkable. Yeah, and if if anything, I, not not to give too much of a spoiler, th- there is some research kind of hinting at the idea that when you add fruit to your diet and you don't change anything else and you're in a free living situation, you might even reduce your caloric intake to to offset that. Uh, you you might end up with a net reduction in calorie intake if you replaced kind of low satiety food sources with fruit, right? So if, if you went from like a sugary beverage to in, to increasing fruit intake. Adding that fruit might actually induce just a tiny bit of weight loss, right? Is so, is that a segue to the next uh, section? It is, but uh, I, I have no idea how I'm going to address editing those two things together. Oh, that, uh, that's that's totally fine. I can but, just put a nice bow on my segment right here, and we can get into yours. Do it, yeah. So, yeah, j- just to fully recap. Um, oh, but wait, I didn't make the point I was trying to make. The point I was trying point. to make is, again, with the people who were kind of sharing that fruit study all over the place... It's like if the first thing they did was look at the magnitude of weight change and just ask themselves, do you believe that increasing your fruit by a couple servings a day really is going to cause you to gain 15 pounds? And do you really believe that reducing by a couple servings a day is really going to cause you to lose 15 pounds? If all you did was ask yourself that question, you'd say no, and you'd shut your computer and walk away, right? But, But it got all this attention and no one bothered to ask themselves, do I believe this? Yeah. Yeah. But go ahead. Yeah. So the the main point I want to I want you to walk away with is just in the context of this particular study, again, title, effective resistance training mainly depends on mechanical activation of fast twitch fiber. I am not arguing that that is maybe even potentially not a true statement. Who knows? It could be. The point I'm making is that you shouldn't rely on this citation to make that point. And if you see people start to discuss this study, start to share it around, maybe share this podcast clip with them. Or if you, you know, if you uh, aren't feeling uh, generous and wanting to give us the traffic, uh, just ask them which they think would be better for hypertrophy, nine sets of 10 with a 30 RM load or three sets of 30. And if they say, oh, it's got to be the three sets of 30, say, okay, you don't actually believe what this study is saying um, and uh, implore that they look at the validation study it was based on and ask them, does the validation study actually at any point measure fast twitch fiber activation? Hopefully they'll realize it doesn't and realize uh, maybe this isn't the study they should rely on to make that point. Sounds good to me. Yes, sir. All right, you ready to move on? Let's do it. Let's talk, speaking of fruit earlier, let's talk a little bit about nutrition, okay? So, Greg, I want to uh, put put a, a hypothetical scenario on the table and get your perspective on this. So, let's say I'm working with a dietitian who is qualified to give me a full meal plan. Mm-hmm. And this dietitian that I'm working with, we have very ambitious goals. We want to try to kind of thread the needle and peak for two very different sports at the same time. Maybe a professional bodybuilding show and even something way different like a professional classic bodybuilding show. Okay. So we're, it's, a, it's an ambitious protocol we're putting together. And they're helping me with my fat loss uh, as I prepare for these competitions. And so they say, Eric, you're supposed to have uh, chicken and sweet potato for this meal. And I say, well, I'm sick of this food. I, I can't, I can't bear to eat more chicken and sweet potato. Instead, I want to have some turkey and a white potato. Now, I'm going to 
arrange them so that the, the carbs, fat, protein, fiber, hypothetically, I'm going to make it all work. Am I making an upgrade, a downgrade, or am I going to be making the same exact amount of progress moving forward? Uh, I think you'll probably make, ooh, well, it depends on the extent to which you subscribe to the John Harbaugh School of Nutrition. That's interesting. Um, I think the published research would tend to suggest that you would probably make about the same progress with both of those approaches, but... As we know, chicken is a nervous bird. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you're trying to win, you don't want a bunch of chicken in your diet. I don't know where turkey fits on the nervous bird hierarchy. Uh, but for to answer that question, we, we might need to call in an expert. They do, they do run if you get too close to them in the forest, like wild turkeys. So they might be nervous birds as well. If, if they are conditional on that, I would say probably similar progress with both approaches. Now, my understanding is that Benjamin Franklin wanted the turkey to be the national bird of yes. the United States. So that tells me that they've got, you know, they're a little bit more resilient, a little bit tougher than a chicken, I would assume, just in terms of their, uh, you know, their their temperament and their composition. Yeah, but Ben Franklin also wasn't your classic tough guy. That's true. But anyway, so uh, do you know the, 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 uh, the acronym IIFYM? Yes. Stands for if it fits your macros. Do you yes. know where that came from originally? I thought it came from the bodybuilding.com uh, misc board, but I don't know if that's true. So my understanding, I don't know the exact area where it popped up. I believe that's correct, but you know, whatever. I'm not going to commit to it without doing the research on it. But the, the general vibe, the, the reason that this whole acronym came to be is because people were on these you know, bodybuilding message boards saying, well, I want to swap out this food for that food. I want to swap out that food for the other food. Can I do this and still succeed with my weight loss goal or hypertrophy goal or whatever the case is? And people would say, dude, if it fits your macros, just do it. It's fine. If you're equating your carb, fat, and protein intake, and in some cases, your fiber intake for the day as well, uh, usually fiber they talk about across the whole day, not within an individual food swap. But if it fits the macro plan, the, the carb, fat, and protein target that you're shooting for every day, just do it. It's fine. You're going to end up in the same place. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, that whole idea of if it fits your macros, the, the more kind of formal term for that th that has gained popularity is flexible dieting. And flexible dieting, the, the flexible part pertains to flexibility with regards to food source selection. Basically, the idea is Flexible dieting means you can choose whatever food sources you prefer to hit your macro targets on a daily basis and make totally satisfactory progress toward your body composition goals. And flexible dieting, or if it fits your macros, it is a valid concept. It works. Broadly speaking, you know, you are not restricted to the like seven classic bodybuilder foods, right? So back in the day, when people started cutting, they would say, oh, I have to eat this very rigid, restrictive, short list of foods that bodybuilders just traditionally eat. It was a lot of white fish like tilapia or tilapia. I don't know how to say it. Chicken breast, rice, sweet potato, broccoli, the whole deal. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a classic video back in the day where someone was prepping for a bodybuilding show and like literally all he ate was... Uh, I think it was uh, fish and rice cakes. Mm -hmm. Do you ever see that video? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so people are restricting themselves to these very tiny food lists and it was unnecessary, yeah. right? 
So people, it, and this was a very positive thing, a net, a net benefit here for the bodybuilding world and the fitness world uh, collectively, this idea of flexible dieting, if it fits your macros, this is valid and it works. And, and it indicates that we have a lot of flexibility for what food choices we make, what food sources we select to hit our daily macro targets. However, there has been a downside of you know th- this uh, this trend in, in which people have broadly embraced that concept, and I want to demonstrate the downside by by sharing two different statements. So the first statement is as follows: You have flexibility to select from a wide range of food sources in accordance with your goals and preferences. There are no foods that are fully off limits for fitness enthusiasts. That's a true statement. That's good. Mm -hmm. The second statement, food source selection doesn't matter. A lot of people have transitioned from the first sentence to the second, the first statement to the second, almost kind of implying equivalence. And the purpose of my, my segment here is to highlight the fact that those are two very different statements. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to get at here is when it comes to food source selection, you can pick uh, from an almost limitless range of food sources. That part of flexible dieting, I absolutely support. It's simply true. But I think a lot of times people try to take that a step further and act like food source selection is completely... Uh, meaningless, like it has no impact on your dietary progress and success. And I don't think that that is true because my belief based on the research is that food source selection is a variable that we can strategically leverage. We can make food swaps uh, strategically to set ourselves up for a diet that is basically going to set us up for more success as we move forward. So Before I get into that, I want to give a little bit of background information about the regulation of food intake. And I'm just completely pulling this from a really incredible guest article that we had in the Mass Research Review by Dr. Anne Catherine Eiselt. Uh, And it was all about the kind of neurophysiological elements of uh, food intake regulation. Uh, So food intake, uh, as she explained in this article, is regulated by several interrelated brain circuits. And as I talk through this, I'm going to show some images on the screen that kind of show what these these circuits look like. So the first one is the hunger circuit. Uh, And there are, of course, a number of gut-derived hormones uh, and hormones derived from adipose tissue or produced by adipose tissue that work their way up uh, into the hypothalamus, and relay signals about the regulation of hunger. There's also the satiety circuit. uh, And what we see is that the satiety circuit involves a number of different brain structures that are all in the the hypothalamus and hindbrain regions. But uh, it's certainly a complicated circuit with a lot of different brain structures that are involved in this communication and this regulation. Uh, And there are a number of peripheral structures that are highly involved in that satiety circuit as well also Um, can i just say brain circuits sound like stuff out of sci-fi yes like arcuate nucleus ventral tegmental area dorsal striatum like that that all that all sounds like places in like a sci-fi city or something absolutely yeah Yeah, the brain stuff gets serious but the third uh brain circuit that i want to talk about here is the consumption circuit this is another one where the hypothalamus is heavily involved 
and it includes reward responses to hyperpalatable food. Okay, so uh, we've got hunger, satiety, and then this consumption circuit, uh, which involves the reward centers in our brain uh, and specifically how they relate to the consumption of food that's hyperpalatable or just really, really, really tasty and, and gives us this uh, this really nice sensation of reward when we consume them. Mm -hmm. So uh, another brain structure that's involved here, which is a little bit simpler, is the prefrontal cortex. And uh, the prefrontal cortex is heavily involved with goal-directed behavior and impulse control. Um, so the prefrontal cortex, the hypothalamus, the hindbrain, we've got all these different brain structures and areas that are working together, conveying different signals, but you know they're, they're integrating all of this peripheral information so that we can kind of control our food intake. And th there's this kind of give and take between these different systems, right? Now, the reason that I bring that up, uh, th this kind of integrated control of feeding, is because uh, it it's pretty important when we talk about uh, swapping out food sources, right? So let's say that you are weighing one carb source versus another or one protein source versus another. A lot of people like to reduce that and basically say, well, you know, Carbs are carbs, protein is protein, right? So when we talk about food sources and how they impact hunger and satiety, one of the most common questions people ask is, uh, you know, are carbs more satiating than fats? Or is protein more satiating than carbs? A lot of people like to break it down simply into macros. Um, and there's some utility of that. But I think that's the wrong question to ask when it comes to how is this food going to actually influence my feeding behaviors, my, my actual food intake, because there are all these different brain structures that are kind of conveying all these different messages and communicating with one another to collectively modulate energy intake. So a lot of times with satiety or regulation of intake, people want to make it just a question about macro content. And I think that's the wrong question to be asking. Um, it's not irrelevant but it's way too superficial to really get to the, the root of what you're trying to figure out here when you're weighing one food source versus another. Mm -hmm. So things you want to ask yourself are these two different food sources that I'm comparing, do they impact my brain's reward system to the same extent? And things that are going to play into that would be the aroma, the flavor, the mouthfeel of the food, the ease of consumption, other contextual factors that will influ influence your experience, your subjective experience of consuming that food. Uh, are they going to impact satiety to the same extent? Uh, of course, macronutrient breakdown plays a role, but normally with food swaps, we're talking about meals that we kind of assume the macro content is going to be relatively equated in this context. But we want to look at things like what is the mass of this meal? What is the volume of the meal? The texture, the rate of consumption, the fiber content, the water content the energy density, which of course is kind of tied in with several of those elements. And then also when we're when we're comparing two different food sources, we might ask ourselves, do these food sources actually play the same role within the meal and interact with other foods the same way? You know, there are some foods that kind of make us want to consume more of a different food because they go really well together. Mm -hmm. And there are other foods that we could put it in a meal and it would not have that same effect. You know, there's almost a bit of synergy where certain food pairings we say those two together those make it really hard to put the spoon down right yeah. so there's a lot that goes into potential food swaps I, and we have I to keep that I in a, mind i think a good example of that because i i think that may come across as like abstract to some folks yeah 
But I think a good example of that is if someone is really into eating chicken wings, yeah. like the carrots and celery that come with the chicken wings are just kind of like to give your, your mouth a break just from the, the heat of the yeah. wings to kind of cool, cool off. So you can go in with more wings. So it's so like theoretically, like, you know, if you get an order of 20 wings and that's all you could eat, maybe you might want to only eat 10 or maybe a dozen of them before you're just like, Oh, th- this is just, it's salty, vinegary, spicy. Like, uh, I'm kind of done with this, yeah. you know, but then if you can kind of cool off with a little celery, maybe dipped in some blue trees dressing, you're like, Ooh, this is nice little flavor contrast, texture contrast, cool the mouth down. You know it would be good. Some more fatty, spicy, vinegary, salty chicken wings. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and one that comes to mind for me um, is a really simple one, but uh, the idea of having coffee versus green tea. Mm -hmm. So in a vacuum, I enjoy both of them very much. But when I drink coffee... Uh, sometimes I say, you know what would go great with this? Something chocolatey or maybe a pastry or something sweet or kind of like a, a creamy like dessert type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I drink green tea, I, this could totally be uh, just my perspective. I don't think a lot of foods go particularly well with green tea or at least not a lot of foods that I consume regularly. Mm-hmm. So if I drink green tea, I can say this is a lovely cup of tea and I don't want anything else. Yeah, this is great. Uh, but when I drink coffee, I, I do start to want something that's sweet or chocolatey or something like that. And so it's one thing where a, a little beverage swap can really make a big difference about what other foods you might gravitate toward. Mm-hmm. You know, or if I was eating something that goes well with coffee, if I was going to end my meal with coffee, maybe I'm more likely to actually continue that meal and eat even more. Yeah, you know, versus if I had some tea after that meal and it was just a clear signal, okay meals over we're we're on to a completely different set of flavors here right mm-hmm. so so that's what i'm getting at is the fact that when we talk about making a food swap it's not just about if the macros equate we have to consider a broader picture of how all these different brain structures communicate with one another and regulate food intake um and you know a, a great example like i said the, the prefrontal cortex is heavily involved with goal directed behavior one of the things that can be really helpful with food source selection is if we don't necessarily have to work too hard to kind of, you know, so if you eat a lot of really hyper palatable meals that for you are just a 10 out of 10 on the flavor scale, yeah, you're like, this is incredible. Every time the meal ends, it's a tragedy. You are really pushing yourself to weigh this massive reward response versus goal-directed behavior and there's this tug of war that you are really amplifying by doing that and so one of the things when your internal dialogue is guy fieri's external dialogue on (laughs) diners drive-ins and dives you might you might run into issues exactly and so again we can strategically leverage that and say you know what if i dropped from a meal that for me is just a 10 out of 10 in terms of palatability and I went to like a seven out of 10 and it was still a very nice meal, but I can be done with it and not just feel absolutely distraught that the meal's over. That can be a really helpful thing when dieting. So when I transition to a fat loss phase, I do something that some people view as counterintuitive, but I actually go toward foods that are slightly less palatable rather than trying to say, okay, I only have 2,100 calories today. 
how do I make that as palatable as possible, which mm-hmm. a lot of people do. And frankly, I, I kind of think they'd be better off if they didn't go that route. So what I'm getting at here is foods contribute a lot more than their macros, uh, not just in terms of like micronutrients and stuff like that, but also in how they impact our body's systems that regulate food intake. And that means, uh, you know, we have to look at food sources and consider more than just, you know, making the macros fit. Uh, There's a lot more that goes into it when it comes to regulation of food intake. So what I want to do is look at a couple studies that have said, okay, let's actually put this to the test. So let's not just say, okay, protein is more satiating than carbs. So if you want to be satiated, eat more protein. Let's look at actual foods and see how they impact subjective satiety levels and also how much people tend to eat after the meal or in combination with that food, right? So the first paper paper I want to look at is a classic by Holt and colleagues in 1995. If you've ever heard of the satiety index, this is where it originated. What they did was they gave uh, servings of 1,000 kilojoules, which is uh, 240 kilocalories or capital C calories, uh, they looked at 38 different foods split into six different food categories. So fruits, bakery products, snack foods, carbohydrate-rich foods, protein-rich foods, and breakfast cereals. Uh, and they fed these servings to these individuals in the study and looked at their satiety ratings over the next uh, 120 minutes or two hours. And what I'm going to show on the screen is is the general finding here. What they did was they they made white bread the kind of standard score of 100%. So all of these were framed as a satiety index score as a percentage in comparison to white bread. So anything over 100% was more satiating than white bread, and anything under 100% was less satiating than white bread. Again, giving a 240-calorie serving of all these different foods in isolation. And so generally speaking, when you look at the satiety index, it was a really great piece of research, a very valuable thing that was contributed. Uh, The general pattern was that foods with uh, low energy density, high fiber content, high water content, those were generally foods that in a vacuum uh, lent themselves to greater satiety responses. Uh, And that's pretty straightforward and it kind of conforms with you know what most people consider to be kind of diet foods. When you go on a diet and you're trying to reduce calorie intake without starving all day, people do tend to gravitate toward these types of foods. So this was a great piece of research, but there was a shortcoming in the sense that this paper has low ecological validity. It's not very representative of real world eating scenarios because it's not very often that we say, Uh, I think I'm going to sit down and have 240 calories of white bread Mm -hmm. and nothing else. Yeah. Or I'm going to sit down and have 240 calories of white potatoes with absolutely nothing else. Right. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting is, you know, looking at research that kind of builds upon this and says, well, in the context of a regular diet in a free living individual who's eating meals with food combination combinations that they selected Uh, over the course of a real day in their normal life, what foods seem to be associated with greater or lesser energy intake, broadly speaking. So I want to talk about a paper by Horgan and colleagues, and that's exactly what they were looking at. So 
rather than looking at a controlled feeding uh, scenario with a single isolated food, they said, let's look at all of your food records uh, over a four-day period. And they had uh, 6,000 four-day diet records that were completed by a ton of people over in the United Kingdom. And they were looking at, you know, if we sort these different foods into 60 distinct categories, how does each of these food categories influence overall energy intake? And I am going to show some figures that don't contain 60 categories because that would be a really big figure. So not all categories are represented within these figures, but they did sort these into a total of 60 categories. And they looked at this two different ways, which is really cool and, and really valuable. Uh, this was a very insightful way to look at it. They looked at uh, how these different food categories influenced energy intake, both within individuals and between individuals. So within individuals, they're basically looking at how changing your intake of a particular food influences your kind of day-to-day -day fluctuation in energy intake. So on the days you ate more of this food, you ate fewer calories, you know, and vice versa. Uh, they also looked at between individual uh, differences. So in this case, they were looking at the people who eat more of this food seem to eat fewer calories than the people who eat less of this food, right? So that's kind of how you frame these two different uh, ways of looking at the data between individuals and within individuals. So on the screen right now, you're going to see what they call the compensation coefficient between individuals. And generally speaking, the lower this, this value is or the more negative, uh, the more it leads to a reduction in energy intake. I know that's kind of a weird way to frame it, but you could, I don't want to use satiety incorrectly here because that's not strictly what it is. But when you have a low coefficient, it basically means the you know the people who eat more of these low coefficient foods tend to eat less than the people who are eating more high coefficient foods. That, mm -hmm. That's kind of the the very basic surface level interpretation. So, if you were going to be, for example, choosing foods that would help you reduce your energy intake very passively, you would want to be selecting foods with a low coefficient, yeah. right? And so you, you can kind of look at these and I'm going to give a broad summary so people aren't just like looking through, you know, dozens of categories here. Uh, I'm also going to display the uh, uh, the data here for the uh, the coefficients within individuals. So again, just looking at the data a slightly different way. And what you see is generally speaking, there's you look at the top of these figures with some of these low coefficient food groups, skim milk, uh, a lot of high fiber uh, breakfast cereals, fruit, things like that, uh, stuff that's generally, uh, you know, have some pretty similar characteristics that I'll get into. But one of the things that's really fascinating when you look through this is there's a lot of variability, uh, a lot of noise in the data from food to food. It's not like the first three are all vegetables and then the second three are all fruits and then the next, you know, it's not neatly categorized in the way you would expect. And there are some, some, uh, some foods that kind of surprise you a little bit, right? So, uh, for example, smoothies end up being a really high coefficient food, whereas most people would say, hey, you're putting some, you know, some uh, fruit, maybe some vegetables, a little bit of yogurt in there with some milk, seems healthy enough to me, mm -hmm. ends up being a really high coefficient food. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I thought was really funny was, man, I've seen so much bad internet content about... Like, oh man, butter is so good for you. It's a superfood. You should spread it on everything. 
polyunsaturated fatty acids, basically poison, stay away from them at all costs. Mm-hmm. I've seen other people saying, no, PUFAs, higher satiety per calorie, you know, better from a cardiometabolic standpoint, definitely go with these PUFA-based spreads, these polyunsaturated fat-based spreads. When, when you look at it in the context of this, it's like, man, what a useless argument to go down. <laughs> like in, ter- in terms of like when people make arguments about like, oh, all you have to do is swap your margarine for butter and you're going to reduce your energy intake or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, and when it, when it comes to impacts on energy intake, they're looking pretty similar. Now, different cardiometabolic effects for sure. I, I don't want to make it seem like they have completely equivalent effects on blood lipids. That's not the case, but that's a discussion for a different time. But uh, anyway, if we look at the results in paint with a broad brush, like I said, there there are some interesting uh, instances where like, you know, for example, uh, specific alcoholic beverages might find themselves in very different standings in terms of the, the actual coefficient. There was a lot of variability and a lot of noise when you go from food to food, and it, it didn't fit into these like perfectly tidy bins that you could categorize easily. Um, but a few notable food categories with low coefficients were foods that had low energy density, foods with high fiber content, and foods that were artificially sweetened. Um, Foods and beverages, I should say, that were artificially sweetened. Some things with high coefficients, again, lending themselves to higher total energy intake in the day, were were foods that generally tended to be very snackable, just based on the context in which they're normally eaten. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alcoholic beverages generally, but not in all cases, uh, spreads that you might put on a bread-based product. So like butter, margarine, jam, jellies, they were all pretty high coefficient things. Um, and that's to be expected based on the context in which they're consumed. And then full sugar beverages were definitely a, a high coefficient category. And we could kind of lump smoothies into that because a lot of commercially prepared smoothies do tend to be quite high in sugar, a, a lot higher than most people anticipate. Yeah. Um, so one thing I want to mention here is that I'm not saying we should be using this totally in place of the satiety index because you know it's not a better or worse situation when we look at these coefficients versus satiety index values, but these are two very different ways of viewing the problem, right? So uh, the, these coefficients, they, they have a lot of ecological validity when we compare them to the satiety index study, uh, but this is observational data. And I know this is cliche, but in this particular scenario, we have to be very cautious about resisting the urge to imply or infer causation based on correlation. So there might be a food that just because of the context in which it is routinely eaten, it lends itself to being lumped on like a high energy intake day or mixed with high energy intake foods. It may not be because of a specific characteristic of the food, but more reflective of the context in which it's consumed. So uh, the practical takeaway here uh, from this study, you know, in in light of some of those limitations or caveats, the results largely support the satiety promoting effects of a dietary pattern that features a lot of foods with low energy density, plenty of fiber, uh, and it also reinforces the utility of switching from sugar uh, sugar sweetened beverages to uh, low calorie beverages that are, you know, flavored with either artificial or non-nutritive sweeteners. So things like, uh, you know, monk fruit extract, Splenda, sucralose, uh, those are the same thing, aspartame, or your favorite stevia, which I know you're a big stevia head. Um, completely untrue. 
and you'll be hearing from my lawyers. That is slander per se. Yes. Uh, they're also, uh, I, I think these findings give us kind of a cautionary lesson, which is, you know, we really ought to be mindful of extra calories that sneak in when, for example, we're at an event where we're drinking alcoholic beverages uh, or, you know, in a social environment or situation where, uh, you know, we're very likely to just have high calorie snack food available. Being very, very conscious of calorie intake in those situations can be helpful. But I think the results also remind us to focus on broader eating patterns, whereas the satiety index kind of convinced people to look at individual foods in isolation. And ultimately, you know, looking at broader eating patterns and kind of the uh, the entire matrix of the meal and how foods fit together and how eating one food causes you to eat more of another food, that's a really important aspect with food source selection that often gets overlooked. Um other noteworthy studies on this topic of putting together meals strategically, uh, there's one by Hall and colleagues. The title was Ultra-Processed Diets Cause Excess Calorie Intake and Weight Gain, an Inpatient Randomized Controlled Trial of Ad Libitum Food Intake. Uh, as you would guess based on the title, they found in this study that processed foods are uh, generally consumed in excess for multiple different reasons. Uh, they're often consumed faster they have a, a, a lower effect on suppressing appetite acutely. Um, and yeah, th th there's a number of characteristics of these highly ultra-processed foods that, broadly speaking, can lend themselves to higher energy intakes. Uh, along those lines, there's a study by Teo and colleagues called Texture-Based Differences in Eating Rate Influence Energy Intake for Minimally Processed and Ultra-Processed Meals. And so basically what they found was they didn't just look at the level of processing with, with meals, but also the texture of the meals. And they found that when people were given a soft and highly processed meal, they tend to uh, eat, uh, eat more quickly and generally eat more. And uh, when we look at the literature uh, looking at meals that are harder in texture uh, and lower in their degree of processing, usually that's going to involve a little bit more chewing. We spend more time with the, the aromas and the flavors of that food. Uh, it gives our satiety signals a little bit more time to basically kick in upon the onset of eating. Uh, and so what they found in this study is that eating rate uh, and energy intake were influenced by not just the degree of processing, but also just the texture of the food. Again, with hard textures and low degree of processing, generally promoting uh, a slower eating rate and less energy intake. Um, There's also a study by Flynn and colleagues that just came out very recently where they were looking at what actually sends the signal to kind of say, okay, the meal's over, let's shut it down, we're done eating. Uh, and what's really interesting is they looked at energy density and they found that changing the energy density of, the, of a meal was very uh, useful uh, from a strategic perspective, but only to a point. What they found was if you can incorporate some foods with low energy density and energy density, what we're talking about there is the energy content in kilocalories divided by the mass of food in grams. Uh, and like I said, usually foods with a lot of fiber content and water content tend to be foods with low energy density. So, you know, fibrous fruits and vegetables, melons, like watermelon has really low energy density, uh, most green leafy vegetables, stuff like that. What they found uh, was 
if you're able to incorporate foods with low energy density and get the energy density of your meal in in its totality down to like 1.75 or 2 kilocalories per gram at in that particular scenario the volume of food you're eating seems to be the limiting factor that convinces you okay meal's over you've eaten plenty of just bulk food content but when you get into meals that have higher energy density so we're talking about over like two and a half three kilocalories per gram in that situation it's usually just the calorie content of the meal that plays the rate limiting role in determining when it's time to stop eating. Mm -hmm. So even if you have this meal that's like five kilocalories per gram, like really high energy density, if you say, hey, I'm gonna put in a couple stalks of celery to try to you know, you know, know, cut into that energy density, it's probably not gonna do much because it's gonna bring you down from five to 4.8 and, mm -hmm. and, and you're still in that range where, where calorie intake is the dominant signal. So just to give some kind of practical takeaways from the totality of this literature so that people can strategically uh, revisit their food source selection. Uh, number one, regulation of energy intake is really complex. It's really complicated, and it comes down to a lot more than macronutrient distribution. So mm -hmm. It's absolutely true that flexible dieting is an effective strategy. It's absolutely true that mixing in different foods that fit your macros will absolutely keep you, you know, on the road toward whatever goal you're pursuing, you know, if you're still hitting your macros effectively. But what what I'm trying to indicate in this segment is that we can make that job a little bit easier by choosing food sources strategically such that we are not working so hard to kind of override these different signals related to hunger, satiety, and hyperpalatability and the way that affects our reward control center. So we can, you know, if it fits your macros, works, it's valid, flexible dieting, totally valid, but we can strategically swap in different food sources in a way that really meaningfully impacts our ad libitum energy intake or just our desire to eat more when we're on a diet. So whether you're bulking or you're cutting or you're maintaining, I would encourage people to consider a few factors when they're selecting food sources. Number one is energy density. Uh, again, high fiber content, high water content, uh, low mass, uh, or, or you know, looking looking at low energy per unit of mass or volume in that meal. Low energy density tends to be really helpful if you're struggling with hunger. If satiety is low and hunger is high, trying to have meals with low energy density is very helpful. And you could look at two different meals with the same macros, but one has different energy density. That is going to meaningfully influence your experience as a dieter. Both can get you where you're going with your body comp goal, but one path can be a lot easier than the other if you're struggling with hunger, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you're bulking, it goes the opposite direction. If you're like really struggling to get enough calories in and you're eating a bunch of really low energy density meals, you can strategically change that and and go toward higher energy density meals and potentially make the process a little bit easier. So I'm not saying that, you know, flexible dieting doesn't work. I'm saying that we can still work on that macro target framework, but make these meals a little bit more compatible with the way our body actually regulates energy intake. Yeah. Uh, other things you want to keep in mind. Uh, and again, I, I want to reiterate when you're talking about energy density and really trying to effectively leverage it, uh, some of this new research indicates 
You want to look at meal level energy density, not just saying, oh, I'm going to bring some celery with my cheesecake and that's going to work out great, right? You want to try to get the whole meal into that into that range of being under like 1.75 or 2 kilocalories per gram. Mm-hmm. Other things, texture and level of processing. Again, if you're struggling with hunger and you want to boost satiety a little bit, harder texture, lower level of processing, generally speaking. That's painting with a broad brush, but you know these are the kind of trends and patterns we see. Uh, foods that you're likely to consume slower probably will help. You know, There are some foods like, for example, if you're eating nuts that you have to crack each nut individually, that, that's kind of a unique way to slow down your eating rate compared to just a big bowl of nuts that are already pre-shelled or pre-cracked, mm-hmm. right? So th- there's some really fun or interesting research where they'll take the same damn food and just find ways to make people eat it slower. Uh, and a slower rate of food intake can be helpful when it comes to promoting satiety. Like that, uh, like the classic apple apple juice study. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a study where they they had some people drink apple juice and like just out of a glass, and other people <laughs> eat it like soup with a spoon. Uh, and yeah, slowing things down, changing texture. Uh, there's also study apple studies apple related where they take a whole apple or a mashed up apple. And the whole apple tends to be better for satiety than mashing it up into a softer, more processed form. Um, palatability, again, you want your, your meals to taste good, but maybe not absolutely phenomenal when you're dieting because that um, the way it lights up that reward signal or that reward center of your brain can actually override some of those satiety signals and lead to some degree of dysregulation of, of the hunger and satiety circuits. It, Dysregulation might be a strong word, but you can override satiety signals that would have otherwise convinced you, hey, we're good here. We, we don't need to eat more. Yeah, that, that's that's like a, a distillation of the common saying like, oh, there's always room for dessert. Yeah. You yeah. know, like you could be stuffed, but it's like, ah, little bowl of ice cream, little slice of cheesecake. I can find room for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, texture, speed of consumption, palatability, food combinations, like I said, you might consider saying, you know what, whenever I eat this, I crave the other. So maybe I'm just going to not eat either of them and do a different food swap that's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to help me stay on track and not feel like I have to work so hard and use so much willpower to hit these macro targets on a daily target. Uh, and of course, anytime you're talking about food source, cost matters, ease of preparation matters, uh, cooking and storage, you know, the feasibility of making the food and having it when you need it, that stuff all matters. And so, like I said, the thing that's going to dictate your progress toward your body composition goal, your fitness goal, of course, a major, major, major element, probably the the most important thing is your macro targets, hitting the right general amount of, you know, carbs, fats, and protein every day, and uh, specifically your calorie intake and your protein intake. In most cases, Those are the two numbers that are really going to dictate your body composition progress. Again, under the assumption that you're not like tremendously deficient in micronutrients, right? So the whole premise of setting macro targets and really prioritizing those and using food swaps that get you to those macro targets, completely valid. And I'm not trying to take away from that. What I'm trying to do is remind people you have a really valuable tool in your pocket, even when you're doing flexible dieting or this kind of if it fits your macros approach. You can strategically utilize food swaps and substitutions and leverage your food source selection in a way that 
doesn't make your diet necessarily more effective, but makes adherence easier and makes the process subjectively much more enjoyable. And it can take you from a place where a certain set of macro targets leaves you hungry every night to a situation where you actually feel uh, you know, like you have a really high level of satiety, your hunger's under control, and you feel like you really don't have to exert too much willpower to hit those targets on a daily basis. So I would encourage people, if you're dieting, whether it's, you know, like I said, weight gain, weight loss, weight maintenance, revisit your food source selection with all of these factors in mind and ask yourself, is there a way that I can strategically alter my food source selection, not to make my diet more effective, but to make it more feasible, more enjoyable, more in line with my preferences, and to help me regulate my hunger and satiety cues more effectively. Makes sense to me. All right. Uh, anything else for this episode, or can we wrap up here? I think we can wrap up. All right. Sounds good. Um, well, that does it for this show. As always, thank you so much for joining us, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.